Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Good morning, everybody. Morning. How are we doing? Great. <clears throat> Sorry, I just got this mug. And I didn't wipe it out first, and it's been sitting for a while, so there's like dust floating on top of it. This is really gross. We'll make it work. It won't hurt me, I don't think. Um, We'll find out. Um, It's great to see all of you. Um, My name is Eric. If I have not had the chance to meet you yet, I am a pastor in training here. Um, And I have the privilege of getting to to do a a few different things uh, here uh, during the week, but also on Sundays. I do music most of the time, but I also get the chance to do this from time to time and teach from God's Word, which is um, a lot of fun, really exciting, and um, yeah, I'm I'm glad you guys get to to do it with me as we we dive a little bit deeper and learn a little bit more. Um, So if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Matthew 14, that passage that we just read. Um, we're going to be spending our time right in there this morning. Um, so if you are newer to our church, uh, if you've just recently started coming around any of that, we have been in the book of Matthew on and off for uh, actually a last, the last couple years. Um, we have been going through the book in different installments, basically breaking up into some more digestible sections. Uh, and working through it that way. So we are actually now in our fifth installment of the book of Matthew, um, which is great. But if you have not already, I would encourage you to take the time to go back. All of the previous teachings for this series are on our website. Um, I think it's incredibly helpful to hear what we have done up until this point, kind of what has brought us where we are and give some some context or a fuller picture of, of where we are today or where we are in this section um, as, we, as we move forward. So I'd encourage you to go and listen to those if you have not already. Um, but what I want to do really quickly, just take a second this morning as we start to give you a, a really uh, quick recap or catch you up on what we talked about last week to help set the scene for where we are today. Um, so Kent talked about the first half of chapter 14, and a lot went down. Right? And I don't know if you were here last week or if you remember, if you've read this story before, a lot happens in the first half of chapter 14. Basically, uh, it starts off with Jesus getting some devastating news uh, about the death of his cousin, John the Baptist. Um, so he tries to get away. Jesus tries to get away for some time alone, which I think makes a lot of sense. Um, but he ends up not being able to because a crowd... Uh, a crowd of people follow him. They want him to heal their sick. They want him to minister to him, to them, all of these different things. Um, and so all of that sets the stage for one of the most famous stories, I think, of one of the most famous miracles that Jesus does, which is feeding this massive group of people that we think is about probably about 10,000 people once everything is said and done with, with men, women, and children. Um, all of that with very, very little food. So this is pretty big stuff. It's a, it's a lot that happens, a lot going on for Jesus, a lot happening in the, in the context of uh, everyone who's involved. So we are picking up Matthew today, or in the book of Matthew, right after all of that happens, like immediately afterwards. Um, 
And a little, little spoiler for you, this story is no less wild, right? No, no less crazy, and it's, uh, I honestly, I, I think it's, it's more interesting to like look at some of the historical context. But hopefully you guys can stick with me, we can hang together, and we can get through all of this together. So let's start in verse 22, Matthew 14, verse 22. I'm going to work through it, and I'm going to break it down and explain what's going on to give us all an idea. So, it says, immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. So, right here, remember, Jesus had all this devastating news. He tries to get by himself. He ends up being interrupted by this crowd, does all of this, all of these miracles. And I think it's really funny here how um, Matthew highlights the urgency with which Jesus, like, shoes away the disciples, right? He, he, uh, he had just had them basically make the whole situation that was going on a little more difficult for him than it had to be, um, but he still does all that he needs to do. He instructs them to do what they need to do, and so here, Jesus is like, why don't, why don't you guys just go? Like, how about you just head on ahead of me? Just get in the boat, just leave, right? So I think it's helpful to note how strongly he does it, too. If you look, it says he made them head out, right? It's like they were saying, come on, just hop in the boat with us. We'll all go together, and he's like, no, no, you, please leave right now. <laughs> I need you to not, not be here anymore. Um, so keep reading. Verse 23, it says, after he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Um, so this is not the main point of the teaching, but I do want to take some time right here to highlight something that I think is, is really important, and I want all of us to be able to see this. Um, like I said, if, if you think back to last week and what happened in the first half of this chapter, this whole ordeal started with Jesus trying to get time alone to be with God. Um, he tried to get away, to be by himself, to pray, and to spend time with God the Father. But then he gets interrupted, right? He gets interrupted by the crowd that's there. He, he gets uh, interrupted by the disciples' response to the crowds, all of these things. He doesn't get that time that he set out to, to get. He doesn't get that time to be alone. But then in today's story, um, Jesus intentionally sends both groups away, and then he finally gets the time that he wanted at the beginning of all of this, right? He, he sends them away on purpose so that he can very intentionally be alone. So I bring all of it up because I think it gives us a, a really helpful and a really nuanced picture of how Jesus views rest and time alone. All right, so first, Jesus recognizes that he needs that. He needs rest. He needs time alone. That's some, that's some good self-awareness. I think it's pretty healthy. Jesus is pretty healthy. I think it's a safe statement. Um, but, but second, Jesus recognizes that at times, the needs of other people have to take precedence over what he would prefer or what he even feels like he needs to do. Right? In, in other words, what, what I think we call um, kind of the idea of what we call self-care is not necessarily the most important thing in Jesus' mind. Right? It is important. Absolutely, it's important. But it is not supreme. Right? It does not always take precedence over everything else, such that he lets thousands of people get in the way of it. Right? Thousands of people get in, into his life in a way that, that he doesn't get to have the time there, but he does not 
allow that to, to, to mean that he never gets time to be alone with the Father. Right? So in my life, personally, and, and some, some other people's lives that, that I have talked to, I find that we usually make one of these two errors. Um, we either so prioritize our own desires or our own needs or our own comfort, any of those things, that we excuse ourselves from ever having to or ever being available to meet the needs of others. Right? We, we either do that or a lot of us let the needs of others so completely dominate our lives uh, that we end up running ragged most of the time, never having time to ourselves, never having time alone with the Lord, which ultimately gets in the way of our ability to even serve those people in the first place. Right? We fall on one side or the other, and we end up making one of these errors. But I think Jesus here is demonstrating an incredibly nuanced approach to all of that. Right? I think a lot of us could learn from that balance that Jesus strikes. It is not this all or nothing mentality that a lot of us have. Right? He, he knows that time alone and time with the Father is important, but he doesn't, he doesn't just push everyone to the wayside every single time to make sure he gets that, but he also doesn't push away his time alone with the Father just for the sake of everyone else all the time. Um, so I think that's really helpful, a really helpful thing for us to pay attention to, myself specifically. Um, so I think that's something that we need to keep in mind. Um, but let's keep reading. We'll look at verse 23. <clears throat> it says, Later that night, he was there alone. And the boat, so the boat with the disciples in it, was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Okay, so we, we see here that Jesus is alone on the shore, right? He sent his disciples away. The crowds are gone. The disciples are on a boat, and they have been for a long time. They've, they've been on the boat for, for many hours at this point. So the phrase that we see translated as uh, considerable distance is more literally translated as many stadia. So a stadia was a, a measure of distance at the time. So one stadia is about 600 feet. And so they were many stadia away from the shore, which tells us they're probably about a mile or two out in the water at this point. Um, and it says the boat was being buffeted by the waves. So this is no like casual Saturday out on the Tennessee River where you're floating around having a good time, right? The, these guys are literally fighting for their lives, fighting against the effects of this storm. And they have been all night. This has been going on, like I said, for hours. No one is having fun in this situation, right? They are, they are not in a good place to the point where the disciples are probably starting to wonder if they're even going to make it out of this alive. So let's see what happens. Verse 25, <clears throat> it says, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. So we just established Jesus was on the shore. The disciples were out to sea. Jesus needed to get to them. I think that makes sense. And if you've been around church for a while, or if you've heard some Bible stories uh, for a while or over and over again, I feel like the way that Jesus gets to the disciples gets glossed over a little bit for some reason. Like we hear these stories so many times, we're like, yeah, it's just what Jesus does. He does that kind of thing. Um, so a lot of us get really desensitized to the idea of Jesus walking on water, right? As if that's just like a thing. Like Jesus, you know Jesus, he just walks on water sometimes. 
right? I like to think that, like, we can, we can see, like, Mary at this, like, little Jewish birthday party, right? And she's like, Jesus, no running on the pool. Um, but, but no, it's not normal, right? This is not a thing that, that was normal. Just because we believe in miracles, we believe Jesus can accomplish these things, and his, his disciples had seen him do that, that does not make the idea of Jesus walking on water any easier to digest, right? Or any easier to, to take in. So how, how do the disciples respond? Are they like, oh, Jesus, it's about time. We were wondering when you were going to like walk on this water uh, to come and save us. No, they were terrified, right? They were already so afraid. And then this happened. So let me, let me put an example like this. Has anyone ever been on an airplane before? Anybody? Yeah, okay, a decent amount of people. Uh, anybody ever experienced turbulence? Yeah, everybody. If you've been on an airplane, if you have not experienced turbulence on an airplane, I'm really curious what airline you flew on. Um, but, so I, I'm personally not really phased by turbulence. I spent a lot of time on airplanes in my life. Um, in my opinion, it kind of spices up a pretty boring situation. Uh, so why not? Like, we're just along for the ride. Um, my wife, Sarah, however, does not have the same relationship with turbulence as me. Um, it freaks her out big time. I think that is safe to say. She hates it. It is, it is a really scary thing for her, which, which is understandable. I know a lot of people are, are afraid of turbulence. So imagine this scenario with me. Um, you get on a flight, right? Takes off, you get up to your cruising altitude. Uh, it starts to get a little bumpy, right? And you feel that first drop and your heart rate spikes just a little bit, right? Uh, and then it starts getting a little bit worse, Planes start shaking more and more and more, and eventually it's like shaking like crazy, right? Even the most seasoned travelers are like, knuckles are white, squeezing on the armrest. Everyone is terrified. And you turn and you look out the window, and you see a friend of yours who did not get on that airplane <laughs> waving at you through the window. I do not care who your friend is. That is a terrifying situation to find yourself in. You're already terrified, and you look out the window, you see somebody who's not supposed to be there, that takes it to a whole new level, right? This is a scary situation. This is insane. And, and this is kind of where the disciples are finding themselves right now. Of course they did not expect Jesus to come strolling out on the water, right? Especially the fact that this water was actively threatening their lives. But I, I also think... Um, this is, this is part of where this really cool symbolism that happens throughout the book of Matthew and in this chapter specifically um, starts to take place. So as a quick refresher, if you, if you didn't know, the book of Matthew was written to a Jewish audience at the time. Uh, that means that they would be really, really familiar with what we now call the Old Testament. They would be really familiar with the, the laws, the stories, all the prophecies, the symbolism, all of the things that happened in the Old Testament, they would be super familiar with. And we have to keep that in mind as we study through the book of Matthew, because there is a lot of detail provided by the author um, that directly points to Jesus's identity. Um, so all of that means this, this audience reading this account in Matthew would be really familiar with the fact that there are, there are a couple different places uh, in the Old Testament that talk about Yahweh, the God of Israel, being the only one who treads on top of the sea. That is a direct reference to 
some Old, Old Testament illustrations about the nature of God. So Yahweh is the only one who treads on top of the sea. It comes up in a, a couple times in Psalms and, and in Job 9 a little more explicitly. So it's probably safe to say the disciples uh, in the heat of this moment did not go from like panicked screaming, we're all going to die, to seeing Jesus and being like, oh, Job 9, nice. Like they probably were not responding that way, right? But the readers of this account certainly would have made that connection. That would have been very clear to them based on seeing what happened here. And what happens next in Matthew um, is, is equally, or I think arguably, even more significant to the readers as far as the symbolism goes. And this is where the disciples start to get an idea and an understanding of, of what is, is going on here and who Jesus really is. So let's look at that next verse, verse 27. It says, Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. So Jesus greets his disciples, who are literally screaming that they think they're going to die. Um, and it, it's how Jesus greets them that I want us to pay attention to. He says, it is I. Or a more literal translation of that, um, he greets them and says, I am. Um, so if you look at the original, the original language, he uses the exact same language used in Exodus from the story of the burning bush, um, which is another just incredibly relevant reference to the readers. So I don't have time to go too much into the story of the burning bush, but essentially what is happening here is Jesus is quoting the voice of God from the Old Testament when God reveals his name to Moses. Right? He says, God in the Old Testament through the burning bush says to Moses that his name is I am. And that's exactly the exact same language that Jesus uses here when he's greeting his disciples, which is so cool, right? That's so dramatic, I feel like. Uh, have you ever watched like a movie that gets like super, super crazy? Everybody's on the edge of their seat. Uh, there's danger, there's drama, there's intensity, all of this stuff. And then the main character hits you with like the perfect line. And you're like, oh, that was so cool. Um, that is like what the disciple or the, the readers of this passage would be thinking in this situation. Like he is quoting the voice of God himself, introducing himself to Moses. So cool. Um, so this is, this is a really big deal. Um, so let's, let's look at how they respond to him in verse 28, the disciples, or Peter specifically. Verse 28 says, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. So we just went from no one ever walking on water to two people walking on water in like 30 seconds. It's so cool. I like to think the other disciples are like, can we do, like, do, do we do this now? Like, people are just walking on water. I guess we can do that. Um, but if you know the story, it changes a little bit. But it's so cool. Um, so I think, I think we've all met somebody uh, that's, that's probably kind of like Peter in our lives. We all know someone who, who kind of falls uh, in this category. Uh, he has two speeds, right? Only two speeds. He is on or he is off. That is Peter, right? There's no middle ground with this guy. Um, 
We see this all throughout, all throughout this book, but look at this situation with me. He, he is one of the disciples who is on this boat, who is terrified for his life, thinking that they're going to die, sees someone walking out on the water, thinks it's a ghost. They introduce themselves as Jesus, and immediately Peter transitions. He's like, you know what? Only way I can know if that's true is if you make me walk on water. It's like, why do you, What? <laughs> That is not where I, would, where I would go, but that's what he does. He's like, you got to make me walk on water too. It's the only way I'll know. Uh, and then he does it, right? What a pivot. This is crazy. Peter just like straight up gets out of this boat and starts walking on water in the middle of the storm. That is crazy. Um, so obviously that has a lot of significance in Peter's life uh, individually, I assume, um, but I want to make sure that we see in, in this part particularly the, the bigger picture of what's going on or the bigger implication of what's going on right here. So we, we know from Scripture that Jesus is fully God, but he was also fully man, right? He was fully human. So when I say he was fully human, I mean he, he, uh, he was fully human in every way. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He got tired. Most of the time, he sunk in water. Like, this is, he's a human. These are normal things that, that is happening for Jesus. But we also have many examples, this one included, of the, of the man, Jesus, in the flesh, doing things that can only be explained by him being filled with the Spirit of God. Right? He is fully human in these moments, but also fully God. So walking on water is one of those things that can only be accomplished if he is filled with the Spirit of God. And here's what I want to make sure that we see. Jesus also has the ability and the willingness to extend that Spirit to others, right? Jesus has the ability and the willingness to extend that Spirit onto others, right? Peter was not going to walk on the water by his own ability. Absolutely not. But because of his, his faith and his reliance on Jesus in this moment, he was able to follow him on the water because Jesus extended that spirit to him. Uh, but if you listen to the whole passage, you know what happens next. Uh, so let's keep reading. Verse 30, it says, But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, that's important, uh, immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? So, right here we see a little bit of a shift um, in our passage. So I want us to slow down right here because we see four things happen really, really quickly in that short, uh, the, the short two verses right there. So I want us to slow down and take the time to look more closely. So first, we see that, that Peter sees what's going on around him. Like he is afraid of this situation. He starts to doubt his position in all of this that's happening. Right? Despite what he has seen Jesus accomplish and who he believes Jesus is in this moment, he is still afraid. And even though he has been filled with the Spirit of God, even the most empowered disciples like Peter in this situation can doubt and can sink. Right? So that happens first. Then second... Uh, we see that, that Peter does start to sink, and at the same time, he cries out to be saved. He recognizes his need for Jesus to intervene 
in what's going on, and he also recognizes Jesus' ability and his willingness to do that, to intervene in what is happening. And then third, Jesus immediately reaches out and catches him. He immediately reaches out and catches him. Jesus does not first say, "Um, how about you take some time to think about what you've done first, right? He doesn't tell him to like try a little harder, like you had it the first time, just go again. He doesn't do that. He doesn't stand by. He doesn't watch him with ambivalence. He immediately saves him. That's what he does. But the last thing that we see Jesus do is Jesus actually calls Peter out, right, after he saves him. He saves him first, but then he asks Peter why he doubted, right? He, he acknowledges the reality of the situation that, that Peter seems to understand, at least in part, who Jesus really is, but then strays away from that and, and away from, from Jesus' authority in all of this, and he starts to sink. So Jesus does correct Peter. He does call him out for, for what just happened, but he was there and he was with him, ready to rescue him first. Right? We're going to come back to that idea in just a little bit. We're going to keep reading, um, keep reading for now. Verse 32 says, And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Right, so as, as we've mentioned already, we have titled this section of Matthew, Understanding the Kingdom, because this is when we see Jesus' followers um, start to do just that. They start to understand the kingdom, they start to understand who Jesus really is. And, and right here in verse 33, um, as far as we can tell, this is the first time in Matthew, that his disciples acknowledge out loud who they think Jesus is, right? And this is a big deal. This is like a really big deal. This is a group of Jewish people, right? Jewish people who believe in one God who is not a human. And they are looking at this human and saying, you are the son of God, right? That is not something that, that they would say lightly, or believe lightly. This would be a big deal. This has massive implications for them personally and also uh, for them socially to, to say something like this about Jesus. And they would have to be really sold on that idea to even consider saying it. And that's, that's so significant. So let's, let's look at the rest of this passage, um, and then I will get to where we're landing today. So verses 34 through 36 says, when they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. So everybody on the boat ends up making it to where they're going safely. They arrive at their destination, and when they get there, these people immediately recognize Jesus. And they already have an understanding of the things that he can accomplish. Um, So what do they do? They they bring all their sick to him. Not some of their sick, right? Not like, these guys are the sickest, so let's start with them. They know who Jesus is. They have confidence that he is capable of doing it. And they're like, bring them all, all the sick people. Because they know that he is capable. And I love the reference, again, in verse 36. Um, they, They beg Jesus 
to, to just let people touch the edge of his cloak to receive healing. So remember, again, this is a Jewish audience. They understood the imagery of the Old Testament. And they would immediately understand the continued imagery being used here. Because in the Old Testament, the promised Messiah is prophesied, when it's prophesied about the coming Messiah, it says that he will have healing in his wings. That is how he is described, as having healing in his wings. And so in Hebrew writing, and historically, the, the edges or the hem of someone's cloak would be called uh, the, the wing or the wings of their cloak, right? And so it's so cool to see that the people who are recognizing Jesus in this town, uh, based on what they, they have seen, what they have heard, they feel like they understand who Jesus is, and they know that the Messiah of the Old Testament will have healing in his wings, and so, because of their faith, they just asked to touch the edge of his cloak, knowing that there was healing power there, and they were all healed. I think it's just so beautiful, the way, uh, the way he ends this section. Um, so, I know, I know it's a lot of different things happening in this story, um, but despite it being a pretty a wild story, um, I think it's super interesting, and I also think it has a lot of helpful information for us to, to kind of glean some things for our lives today, right? There's some really helpful encouragement I think we can find in this passage and also some reminders um, about the nature of Jesus that I think that we need to hear to challenge some of our thoughts um, on how we approach Jesus in our, in our lives. So in this passage and, and in the larger, con, uh, larger scope of Scripture, we, we learn a lot about Jesus's identity and, and how our understanding of it uh, comes out in our lives. Um, so we're going we're gonna to jump into that idea. Um, and there, there are two aspects of Jesus I want us to focus on and what it looks like in our life. And the first is that Jesus is Savior. Right? Jesus is Savior. So we see it in this passage. When, when Peter gets out of the boat and he walks toward Jesus, he, he, gets, he gets overwhelmed. Right? He begins to sink. But... In that moment, Jesus reaches out to save him, right? He reaches, he reaches out to pull him out of the danger that he's in, to get him out of the mess that he's gotten himself into, all right? Because that, that is who Jesus is. Jesus is a savior, right? He said himself, he said, I come to seek and to save what is lost, Right? Jesus is Peter's and the disciples and our Savior. That is, that is a, a deeply true part of his identity. He saves us out of our sin, and he has a regular practice of rescuing us out of the messes that we often get ourselves into. Right? And he is always available. He is always there to come to save, to rescue, and to deliver Right? He, he doesn't just like help them, help those who help themselves, I feel like is a phrase that we say a lot. That's not how Jesus operates. He just helps, right? Jesus is Savior. And also, Jesus is Lord. So Jesus is God in the flesh. That's what, we, what we've talked about. He is the God who walks upon the sea, 
right? Because he made the sea. He's more powerful than that. He's the, the creator. He is the sustainer of all things. He is the one in charge, right? Which means that he, more than anyone else, knows how life should work. He knows how our lives should work. And he offers commands and instructions and wisdom throughout Scripture on what it looks like to live a life this way, to live life within his kingdom, to live the entirety of our lives within God's will. Right? He correctly and rightfully tells us how to use our time. He, he correctly and rightfully tells us how to use our money. He correctly and rightly tells us how to live out our sexuality and all of those things. And our lives work better when we choose to live them under his good and loving authority. Right? Jesus is both Savior and our Lord. He is our Savior and our Lord. And, and I bring all that up and I make that distinction because I think it's easy for many of us um, to lean on, on one of those views of Jesus over the other. We tend to fall on one side or the other, and we, and we reduce Jesus' identity to something a lot smaller than it is. And I do this all the time. So some of us, uh, some of us lean more towards viewing Jesus as our Savior. That is where we primarily look at Jesus. So um, let's say you, uh, you've, had, you've got a big test coming up or a big project looming overhead, and you go straight to praying and asking for help on it, right? Maybe, maybe you've been in the midst of like a really difficult physical situation, right, where you may be hurting from, from an ailment or you're scared for your safety or, or you, you've, and, then, and then you've gone to the Lord and asked for healing or asked for protection or to be rescued out of this situation, Right? Or maybe uh, like me and so many other people that, that I know, you've been in the midst of something incredibly difficult, maybe emotionally or mentally. Um, you feel like you've reached just the absolute end of your rope. And you cry out to Jesus to save you and to sustain you. Right? And, and part of the beauty of all of this is that God is faithful. Right? God is faithful and he hears the cries of his people. He does and he's present in the midst of what we're going through. And, and he, just like we see Jesus in this passage, he reaches out and he, and he grabs us by the hand. He doesn't first lecture us on the mess that we've gotten ourselves into. Right? He doesn't remind us, you know, God helps those who help themselves because that's, that's, not, that's not what he said. He never said that. Right? He saves he rescues. He comes to our aid. But also, I think some of us who primarily see Jesus as Savior um, can, can tend to struggle to see Jesus as Lord sometimes, right? Since, since you know and you understand the depths of his grace and his forgiveness for us, there might be times where, where you don't take your sin quite as seriously as Scripture does, right? You may think things like, uh, you know, what's one more time? You know, it'll be taken care of later, right? Or maybe you feel like you can live uh, maybe with a little less, little less conviction, a little less discipline in your life because, you know, ultimately, 
God's probably going to come through. He's probably going to come along and bail me out, right? Maybe uh, you get to the end of every month knowing that you're going to have a really hard time making ends meet because uh, you refuse to take the time to budget, right? And, and then you, take, you, you don't take that time to do that and to, to steward your resources well, and then you end up turning to Jesus and to life group and friends to be there to catch you instead of taking ownership over your finances, right? Now, there are extenuating circumstances, obviously, but if we keep going back to it time and time again of like, here we are again, there was really no way to avoid this, but I wouldn't know because I didn't try, but somebody will help me out, right? So some, some of us who naturally see Jesus as Savior struggle to see him as Lord sometimes, but also, there are some of us who primarily see Jesus as Lord. Right? Jesus, in this passage, demonstrates his lordship over creation. He also does it throughout the Gospels. We, we see him asserted as Lord, right? And we also see him as the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies and the physical manifestation of God on earth, right? And maybe your, your natural tendency is to see him that way. You think of yourself as a person who, who listens to what God says. You follow God's rules. You live life God's way, right? You've got a deep reverence for who God is, and you strive to, to live your life in light of that reality because you do see him as Lord o- over all. Because, because you claim that Jesus is Lord, you don't see any other option, right? Any option other than striving to live life out of that understanding, um, which can cause your life to be marked by some, some pretty incredible distinction from the world around you. Absolutely. People can see that and, and just wonder, like, why do, you, why do you live like this? Like, what, what is your motivation for doing that? And, and it can create some great opportunities for, for gospel conversations and, and, and all of those different things, and that's awesome. But uh, sometimes viewing Jesus primarily as Lord can also... Uh, lead, lead to some of us taking so much pride in our ability and our willingness to do all of those things um, that maybe sometimes we look down on anyone that we feel like doesn't measure up or doesn't measure up to our standards or, or we struggle mightily sometimes to know what to do when we do mess up, right? We struggle to ask God for help because we've spent the majority of our lives and the majority of our time pretending that we don't need God's help, right? When, when we fail in these situations, we, we have a tendency to run away from him and hide rather than run towards him because we have this, this hunch or this thought in the back of our head that he doesn't want to see us in our moment of failure, Right? Or maybe you see him as Lord in the ways that you steward what you have, right? Like we just talked about. You have an amazing budget. You stick to it perfectly. You see the progress that you're making, and that's great. But maybe something unexpected comes up, and, and something doesn't work out like you planned, whatever, whatever that looks like. And then you just feel like a failure because you didn't do enough, Right? You tried and you, and you tried to live your life and, and, and do all the things in your day-to-day life that would reflect that Jesus is Lord and it still wasn't enough and something goes wrong. Or maybe 
you live in, in constant fear or, or anxiety because knowing that at any moment, because Jesus is Lord, he could just cast you aside if he wanted to, decide he wants nothing to do with you. Right? Maybe you just live in constant fear of being rejected by the, an almighty and perfect Lord. Right? We, we can be so on board with him being our Lord that we forget that he also came to be our Savior. But while we tend to find ourselves at different times in one of these two categories, Jesus wants us to see him as both. Jesus is both Savior and Lord. He wants us to live as if he is Lord of our lives. He does want that, but he wants that because he is our Savior. Right? So to those of you who have that imminent exam uh, or project, like we said, or, or an important meeting or something coming up, and we pray that, uh, please save me in the form of an A or maybe a B and I can still keep my GPA up. Um, we pray that prayer, and, and I feel comfortable saying that, that God would be happy to, to help you focus, to, to be there and be delighted uh, to see you uh, succeed in that. I, I, I feel comfortable saying that, but I also think he would be delighted to see you in the weeks prior, spending time working diligently and, and studying hard and preparing because as a follower of Jesus, you know that, that your work is not just work. It's an opportunity to live in light of your new identity. And he, he would love to see that as an act of worship and recognizing Jesus' identity because he's Lord in your life. Uh, your work and your effort is not coming from a place of trying to earn value or prove yourself, but it's coming from a place of security or reverence for a creator. Right? And I, I think God does desire to provide physical and, and emotional support and healing for his followers, all of those things when we ask for those in a time of need. But I think he also desires for us to live our lives every day with an understanding that he's deserving of us laying all of ourselves before him. Every aspect of our lives, in our health or unhealth, any of those things that we get to lay that before him. We get to use our physical and our emotional selves as a means of worship and putting aspects of Jesus on display for those around us to see. And when we fall into sin over and over again, he absolutely wants, wants to be there and he wants us to rejoice in the reality of his grace and to live in the freedom of, of the forgiveness that we have been offered. But he also desires for us to continue putting the old self aside. He desires to see us continue laying down our sinful desires. He wants, us, he wants to see us living more and more towards what we have been called to as his followers. He wants to see us take active steps towards preventing falling into sin. He wants us to try to set up things and take those active steps to, to put those barriers in place and put some healthy, albeit difficult, guardrails up in our lives to, to steer all of us towards lives of righteousness right, and away from our sinful tendencies. 
And these, these aspects of Jesus are so beautifully intertwined, right? We cannot separate these ideas. And when we try, we, we end up putting ourselves sometimes in, in a trap of our own making, right? The, the beauty of all of this is that we have been set free. We've been set free from the bondage of our sin so that we can pursue lives in the fullness that they were intended to have. We have been set free, absolutely. We have been saved from the bondage of our sin, but we've been saved so that we can pursue the fullness of life that we were intended to have, right? To believe in Jesus is to believe that he is Savior, to see him as Savior, the one who suffered, the one who bled, the one who died, to take away our sin, to rescue us out of it. But to believe in Jesus is, is also to see him as Lord, right? To see, to see that he rescued us into his kingdom, to live life in, uh, in the way that he says life works, to live towards that reality, right? Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Lord, right? And, and every single one of us is invited to participate in that. We, we are invited to enjoy and, and, and celebrate in the, in the reality that Jesus is our Savior. Jesus has saved us from our sin, from the punishment of our sin, and created a way for us to be in relationship with him again, but also to see him as Lord, as the one who de designed life to work a certain way, who created us in his image in a desire to see us live in light of that and live in the freedom that he has provided us. So I invite you guys to, to bow your heads and pray with me. God, we uh, first just want to thank you for, um, for who you are, um, that you are both, uh, are both our Lord um, and, and Lord over all creation, our lives included, um, but also thank you so much that, that you are our Savior, um, in the, the moments that happen over and over again where we lose sight that you are Lord or where we, where we stumble, where we fall short, all of the ways that our sin impacts our lives or the brokenness of a sinful fallen world impacts our lives, um, that you are our Savior, um, yeah, and I, I just pray that we, uh, to those who, who primarily see you as Lord, I, I pray that you would continue to grow their understanding of who you are and the authority that you have and the way that you have designed things to work and, and the beauty that is in that, but that you would also just um, overwhelm them with the sense that um, they are in need of a Savior that because of our, our sinful tendencies and our brokenness, we can never fully live up to uh, the way that life was intended, but, um, but they have a Savior. 
They need a Savior, and you are there. You are right there when we cry out. You are there to, to save us, to reach out and to take our hand. And I, I pray that we can be reminded of that. And those who, who live in light of that um, and primarily see you as Savior and rejoice in the grace that, that you extend to us and, and, and enjoy that reality that we would also grow um, in seeing you as, as Lord over our lives, um, that we have been shown grace, we have been given forgiveness, we have been set free from the punishment and the bondage of our sin, but uh, you, you tell us that it's for freedom that we've been set free and that we can live uh, in a way that, that continues to work to, to align our lives more closely with you and the way that you intended life to work while also resting in the, in the joy of knowing that yeah, we have, been, we have been saved and our debt has been paid and we are invited to, to participate in that with you. And thank you that we have that opportunity. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.